0: Welcome to This Week in California Education, produced by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource, with John Fenstwald, Editor at Large at EdSource. Welcome, John. Great to be here, Lewis. This week, we'll be talking about some tensions within the charter school movement on a national level, as well as about a controversial Supreme Court ruling that has some implications for California. Or maybe not, John. Right. And uh, then we'll also be looking at a new strategy to prepare teachers
1: to work with kids with dyslexia. Let's go national first, Lewis. It's been an interesting fallout from President Trump's education budget. It's caused some divisions among charter advocates. It looks like that the coalition, kind of bipartisan charter coalition, that's been divided by the president's new and aggressive budget plan. And that's notwithstanding, you know, that uh, both he and... Education Secretary Betsy DeVos are charter supporters. Now, what can you tell us about that?
0: One of the core issues is that charter schools call themselves public schools, and they are technically public schools. Charters come from public school districts or some other public agency, even though there's many aspects of them, they are run privately. They have their own nonprofit boards. But one of the things that has really divided the charter school movement is that President Trump is proposing these massive cuts to federal education funding. He wants to cut over $9 billion out of $68 billion that are currently going to mostly to public schools. This month at the conference of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, Nina Reese, who is the head of the organization, actually was very frank. She said, and I'm quoting, the Trump administration's policies have put us in a difficult spot. And she really blasted all these cutbacks. What she says is to boost funding for charter schools while reducing it for other vital programs that help our students would be akin to watering a plant in a dark room, because President Trump is proposing to increase funding for charter schools as well.
1: Yeah, startup grants, right? It's
0: of- for startup grants, yeah. that's right. And also he's proposing a school choice program, 1 billion dollars more for Title 1 schools for low-income kids that would allow them to go to any public school of their choice, and because charter schools are public schools, that technically would benefit charter schools as well.
1: So how do you think this might play out with the majority Republicans in Congress?
0: Well, one of the concerns that Nina Reese actually talked about was that on the one hand, you're going to have Democrats who are going to refuse to go along with President Trump's education agenda and actually many other parts of his agenda, and so less likely to really want to support charter schools. And then you have Republicans who are going to be mostly interested in reducing government spending for public schools and would be more interested in putting money into vouchers for private schools and religious schools. And so this pretty unified movement that has evolved over the last 20 years might become more
1: fractured. So have California charters been active in this and outspoken? A number of them, you know, like Aspire, they get Title I money. They get money for their poor students. Yes, and actually, all of these major charter school organizations
0: in California call themselves public schools. Aspire public schools, Green Dot public schools, Summit public schools, Alliance College-ready public schools. And they all signed on to an op-ed piece that was in USA today this spring, where they basically said they could not support the president's budget as proposed, indicating that even if it means turning down this extra money for charter schools, so be it, that they couldn't support the budget in its current form. That's fascinating. Of course, John, this is highly speculative as to what actually is going to happen with President Trump's budget. It may not go anywhere in Congress, and so all of this is really on a theoretical level at this point, as to what actually is going to happen. Right. But what did happen this week, not on a theoretical level, was a Supreme Court ruling. On what seemed to be a rather obscure topic, a preschool run by a church wanted to get
1: their playground resurfaced, That's right. How did the Supreme Court get in on this? So it's a really important First Amendment uh, free expression of religion case. And Trinity Lutheran Church in Missouri had applied for a state grant to resurface its playground. And it was rated highly, you know, among all the applicants. And it did not get the grant because under the Missouri state constitution, you can't give public money for religious schools. So the Supreme Court on a 7-to-2 vote, came back and said, no, this is discrimination against that church preschool, and you can't do that just because it's a church school. That's not, That alone is not a sufficient reason to say no.
0: What implications does this have for California? Doesn't the California Constitution have a similar thing, this this so-called Blaine Amendment that prohibits the state from spending state monies
1: on private or sectarian schools? That's precisely it. About three dozen states have this same amendment. It's called the Blaine Amendment. It was the late 19th century. It was actually a, an anti-Catholic amendment that a lot of states adopted at the time. They've been in the state constitutions, California too. So the question is, does it have a farther implication beyond simply as I think Justice uh, Robert, who wrote the majority opinion, say, is this all about a few scraped kids' knees and Judge Roberts said in a footnote, this is just about a preschool. Don't read anything else into it. This footnote got a
0: bunch of justices riled up. Yes. Least, there was uh, Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor.
1: Well, the, there were two, Justice Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg dissented. They were the two dissenter. But another two justices, including Neil Gorsuch, the newest Trump appointee, And Clarence Thomas said, hey, we don't agree with this footnote. We think that there are larger implications. We think that public money should be given for other reasons as well. You know, they didn't say it, but perhaps school funding for vouchers. So that's the important, and in fact, the next day... After the decision, the Supreme Court sent a notice to Colorado and some other states and said, well, you know what? You ought to be thinking about the implications of this decision. And in Colorado right now, the Supreme Court in Colorado ruled out public money for school vouchers for parochial schools because of the Blaine Amendment. And so by the Supreme Court sending out this notice, it's a clear invitation by at least probably at least four of the justices of the Supreme Court, bring this case to us next year and we'll decide it. And so those who opposed the voucher said, hey, it's just a narrow ruling, but I think everyone understands that there's going to be a larger ruling down the road, very much affecting school vouchers, including that if a state has a school voucher for private schools, it's going to have to include religious schools.
0: Well, that's very interesting because this is not just a theoretical issue now because the Trump administration and Secretary DeVos are, this is the main part of their education agenda is, is promoting private school vouchers. And California has been on the record. I mean, voters have twice turned down the notion of private school vouchers. But this ruling could open the door to making California's prohibition then on spending money to private schools Unconstitutional?
1: I wouldn't go that far. What I think the implication might be, we'll have to see, is that if you're going to have a school voucher program, you just can't limit it to private schools. It must be open to all schools, including religious schools. Now, California voters have twice said, we're not interested in vouchers, period. So it wouldn't necessarily open the door to California vouchers. And the president, or at least Secretary DeVos, has said, we're not going to impose vouchers on states. It will be a voluntary effort. States have to say they want vouchers, but we have to see how that plays out.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you, John, about another story that you wrote about on the core districts, which education insiders know. It's a a half dozen or so school districts, including some of the state's largest They went to the state board, and they wanted the state board of education to declare these six or seven, how many districts? Actually, it would be eight now. Eight districts. Okay. Collectively as an innovation zone. Yes.
1: Sounds like a good idea. So the core districts, if you remember under No Child Left Behind, they got a waiver, a federal waiver, to do some innovative things that California wasn't interested in. They looked at chronic absenteeism, different ways of measuring student growth, social and emotional learning, things that the state wasn't doing at the time. Well, as it turns out, the dashboard, you know, which the state has adopted, it has many of these aspects, but the core districts now... We the a No Child Left Behind has been replaced by the Every Student Succeeds Act. So the core districts are going back to the state board and say, we're doing interesting work. We're still doing interesting work. We'd like your permission for a waiver under the Every Student Succeeds Act to continue our work. And so they've written to the state board saying, please consider this innovation zone because you're now creating a state plan. So bring us in not only us, but any district that wants to do what we're doing, include us as part of this innovation zone within the state's accountability scheme. So, so what did the, the
0: state board respond Yeah, Well,
1: or? not quite. The state board sort of did an end run around. The staff wrote to core and said, well, we think it's premature because we're not even quite sure what the state plan is going to look like. So, you know, it's 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 too early. And so it's sort of Catch-22, when do you apply for something that the state is creating? If it's not done, the core districts want to be part of that. So we don't know what's going to happen, but the state plan will be adopted In September, so we'll know something between now and then. But what does this innovation refer to? I mean, uh, there's some
0: things in their accountability system that the core districts, these uh, six to eight districts, have have introduced that's different from what the rest of the state is doing.
1: That's right. They are they they have an existing system that includes school climate and a high school readiness index that the state doesn't have, and so the cores also is, so social and emotional learning? Yeah, like, social, you know, how do students uh, think about themselves as learners? How do they persevere? And, and this can provide some really interesting information to schools. Where it fits in an accountability index is a little bit controversial, but – CORE's position is says, look, we'll go by the state's accountability system. We just have these other measures. Let us work on this because, in fact, we may get results that you may be interested in in a year or two. Given our research partnership and the work that we're doing, if you let us do it, we may produce things that you want. So that's what this is about. Seems like a reasonable request. <laughs> so so where, where where do we go from here on this? I think that CORE has asked for additional discussions with the state board. They would really like to bring it to the board for a full discussion, but at this point, the staff is saying it's premature, so it's kind of at this point a shortcut. They're looking for a way to bring it to the board, but right now there's no avenue to do it.
0: Well, we wanted to just switch gears for a minute here or two and welcome Jane Adams, our student wellness reporter, to the conversation. Welcome, Jane.
2: Great to be here.
0: Jane, this week you wrote about an issue that affects large numbers of children in California and uh, that at least one school district is getting a head start on. What is the issue and what is the district?
2: It is dyslexia, and the district is Los Angeles Unified School District.
0: Well, how many kids actually are are estimated to have dyslexia of some form or another in California?
2: The International Dyslexia Association, which is a well-respected group of researchers, estimates it's 15 to 20% of people, varying degrees of severity, as you noted, which could mean uh, 1 million kids in California
0: out of the 6 million in the in the public schools how that that's that's a lot of kids so there's a new state law that is nudging school districts to do more in this area what what is that law
2: that's exactly right it's a nudge it was passed in 2015 but just goes into effect at the start of this upcoming school year it's called AB 1369 from assemblyman Jim Fraser and what it says, it went through a sort of a tortured process of getting passed. So it didn't get everything that people with dyslexic kids wanted. But it requires the California Department of Education to create program guidelines for dyslexia. That's what they're called. And parents were very anxious about what these guidelines would mean. Because in my reporting, parents by the dozens told me of. The struggles and the anguish of their kids not being able to learn to read and turning to schools and not getting help, that made a difference. So parents were concerned that these guidelines might not have any heft to them. Now it appears that they do have heft, and we'll see. They're going to be revealed sometime in August But LA Unified took a step last week when its school board gave the district 90 days to come up with a plan to implement what they think are the new suggestions that are coming, which include training teachers, particularly special ed teachers, who, incredibly enough, according to people I spoke with, are not always trained to mitigate dyslexia, and training general ed teachers and doing proper assessments and so on to help these kids.
1: Well, Jane, your story really struck a chord with parents. And we've had a lot of comments, unusual number of comments, and really heartbreaking stories that they're talking about in in which they say that they've really had a hard time getting their children diagnosed and that they've had to spend lots of money on their own or homeschool their children because they complain that the schools just haven't done anything for their children.
2: One parent I spoke with, talked about the nightmare that homework became. As you can imagine, if here you have a child who's perfectly bright and cannot seem to read, and it's baffling to everybody involved and anxiety-producing, and, of course, the teacher might say, spend more time reading at home. And there's been brain imaging that shows that brains of kids with dyslexia process word recognition in a different way So, it's not a question of not trying hard enough. It's a question of getting some help to facilitate that processing.
0: Jan, I do have to ask you, though, is that many kids who have dyslexia have been diagnosed with dyslexia and are in special ed programs of some kind. Are those the kinds of teachers or kids we're talking about, or are we talking more about kids who may have less severe? forms of dyslexia and are in regular classes and are just may not be doing very well because people don't actually know that they have this, these, these issues and, and no way to diagnose them. And a parent might themselves be in the dark that the kid actually is dyslexic.
2: There's both situations. I think from my reporting and talking to the legislators, the dyslexia groups, there's a very active parent group called Decoding Dyslexia California they say that the schools were not doing the proper assessments to determine if a student entering special ed had dyslexia. What they would diagnose it as is called a specific learning disability, but they would not take the next step that said it was dyslexia. For years, and it's still true, I still hear this from parents, that their school psychologist says, I cannot say the word dyslexia because that would immediately, in their minds, trigger the need for specific services to address dyslexia, and schools didn't want to invest or didn't have the funds to invest in training and programs.
1: A couple of people in your story said, well, it's all about money. It's all about the money. And I wasn't quite sure what they meant, whether the money was in terms of training teachers, which would seem to be less than providing extensive services. But I think as the parents said, if you catch these problems earlier, that's when it's less expensive. Is that right?
2: They described kind of an Orwellian situation where there has been evidence-based programs for decades on how to mitigate dyslexia. Teacher prep programs don't train teachers. I talked to one woman who got her reading specialist credential. She said she'd received no training in dyslexia. So the teachers aren't trained, then the schools don't diagnose it, and they've already invested in some other reading program, and they don't want to buy this other one. I think that adds to the parents' frustration that there are, as one researcher said, it's not a problem, a medical problem where we don't know what to do. She said it's an action problem. We know what to do, but nobody's taking the action.
0: Jane, I have to say, I'm kind of shocked to hear this because I worked in special ed many years ago, and we would do these diagnostic tests with the kids to see if they were dyslexic. I thought everyone sort of, that was a basic thing, but apparently not. So I think we're going to really follow up at EdSource on this issue. And thanks for looking into this issue.
2: I'm glad you were assessing those kids. Not everyone is.
0: Jane, I'm not going to let you go. We have you here. What is your prediction for what's coming up over the next few weeks?
2: There's an interesting bill in the Senate, I believe it's SB 607 by Nancy Skinner, that would extend this kind of groundbreaking law in California that withdrew this term called willful defiance as a cause for suspending kids in grades K through three. That bill is set to expire, that law rather, and this bill would extend it. What's that issue is the grade terms are that it would cover.
0: So what are they talking about? I understand it's the K, they wanted to K-5 and then potentially 6 to 12 as well for a limited number of years?
2: They're talking about that. At the beginning they went in, they wanted K-12, but I guess that was an opening salvo. And they've been working with opponents who say teachers are not trained in alternative methods to discipline kids. Okay,
0: we've got to cut to the chase. So then what is your prediction? What actually The bill will pass. But what grades? I'd say K-5. K-5. Okay, I'm going to throw in my prediction is that they'll split the difference and it will extend to K-8, but they will leave out high school this year, and maybe next year they'll come back with the high school ban on willful defiance. John, I'm not going to let you off the hook either. What is your prediction of the week?
1: Well, the next draft of the Every Student Succeeds Act, the state's plan, will come out this week, and I don't know what it will say, but I do predict that a lot of people will spend their 4th of July reading it. Myself included.
0: How many pages is that? (laughs) I'm afraid to look. It's around several
1: hundred pages, right? Maybe not that long.
0: Well, I hope you'll report back after the weekend, John, as to what what is in that report. Well, that just about wraps it up for this week. Thanks to Jane Adams, our student wellness reporter, for joining us this week. John Fensterwald. Thanks to our producer, Sarah Tan. For more on these and other topics, go to our website at edsource.org. I'm Lewis Friedberg. Thanks for listening and see you next week.